There are some people in this world that genuinely believe that killing people, innocent people, is entirely a good thing. It was 1989, and FBI agents had been huddled around a sound recorder, listening carefully with expressions of terror and grief splashed across their faces. They had bugged the home of Zayn Issa, a 61-year-old Palestinian-American suspected of having ties to a terrorist organization. They had bugged his home in hopes of discovering information that would lead to an arrest to put Zayn away, and hopefully result in obtaining other pieces of critical information regarding Regarding the organization, but what they suspected to be great evidence turned into evidence of a different kind. Evidence that left the listeners confused, angry, and shocked. On tape, they had heard the ruthless murder of one of Zane's daughters, Palestina. Palestina, known to many simply as Tina, was a fun-loving 16-year-old girl. But Tina liked to have a little too much fun, if you asked her father Zane and her mother Maria. They were both very strict, and Zane's desire for his daughter to adhere to his rules reflected heavily on his wife, who became just as bad as he was. Tina wanted to enjoy her high school experience. She wanted to have friends, flirt with boys, go shopping, and it's believed that, perhaps worst of all in Zane's eyes, his daughter was dating a boy, a boy outside of the Islamic faith. This fueled Zane's rage hypocritically, as his wife Maria was a Roman Catholic from Brazil, but it was decided upon that all of Zane's children would be Muslim. There was no room for debate, certainly no room, as was later proven. The home became a very toxic place for Tina. It was such a dangerous place, in fact, that one of her sisters claimed that part of the family sought help from the police months before the murder occurred, requesting that Tina be placed in a foster home for her own safety. But nothing was ever done. Because they considered their daughter so rebellious, one day Zane and Maria came together and knew that they needed to take action. On the night of November 6, 1969, Zane and Maria argued with Tina after she had returned home from her job at a fast food restaurant. They were angry with the fact that she was at work at all, oddly enough, but suddenly they began accusing her of skipping work and disobeying them, certainly out causing trouble and violating their rules instead of being at her job. Tina was rightfully confused by this, but suddenly the petty argument didn't matter much. Once Zane said something that chilled all of the FBI agents listening. Here, listen, my dear daughter. Do you know that this is the last day? Tonight, you're going to die. Tina didn't think she quite heard what her father said, so her father spoke again, saying... Do you know that you're going to die tonight? Tina was terrified, to say the least, and remained still while Maria began questioning her about items that she had in her backpack. Out of nowhere, Tina suddenly begins to scream in fear as Zane demands that she keep still. Tina begs her mother to help her, but the mother mocked her daughter instead, saying that there was no help for her. Zane withdrew a boning knife and began stabbing into Tina's chest while Maria held her down. 
Blood flew as Zane viciously stabbed over and over while Maria interrogated her daughter, asking her if she was going to finally listen to them now. Tina pleaded, repeatedly saying, yes, yes I am, but it wasn't enough. Zane demanded out loud for Tina to die, saying, die quickly, my daughter, die, little one. Their plan was set in stone. Zane stabbed his daughter six times, piercing a lung, her liver, and her heart. Tina died with Zane's foot on her mouth as he attempted to quiet her screaming and begging. Unfortunately, the FBI agents were unable to help as the recording they were listening to wasn't live, but previously recorded while no one was monitoring the device. Zane and Maria were promptly taken into custody and stood trial for the murder of their daughter. On tape, the jury listened to more evidence, evidence of the two planning out how they'd make the murder look like self-defense, claiming that their daughter had been used drugs or had tried to attack them with a knife, an elaborate yet clearly untrue story. The jury didn't buy their warped justification for the brutal murder of their own child. Both parents were sentenced to death for their actions. A family friend spoke on the stand, clearly upset at the jury's decision, claiming that the jury didn't understand how important it was for Zane and Maria to murder their daughter, as Tina was an embarrassment to their family, and allowing her to live would have been like walking into public without clothing on. Maria's sentence was later commuted to life in prison, and Zane died in prison in February of 1997 after succumbing to diabetes. The memory of Tina lives on in her sisters and those who actually loved her. Girl Scouts, their cookies are practically legendary. But in June of 1977, at a camp near Locust Grove, Oklahoma, the girls were anything but cheerful. Dismissed warnings, three chilling murders, and a camp forever changed. All of this and more as we explore the anatomy of murder. It was about 6 a.m. on the morning of June 13, 1977, when Carla Wilhite, a counselor at Camp Scott, went on her way to take her morning shower. But curiosity pulled her away from her usual walk. The night before, strange sounds cried out into the air like an animal, but like no creature she had ever heard before. Carla followed the path down to where she suspected the noise to have come from, only to stumble upon a shocking scene. Three sleeping bags were lying haphazardly beneath a tree, one green, one with a floral design, and one with yellow plaid. Carla inched closer in horror. Beneath the plaid sleeping bag, a young girl named Doris Denise Miller lay dead, nude from the waist down and hands duct-taped behind her back. With her in their own sleeping bags, her two murdered tentmates. No one could believe that the events at a summer camp could go so horribly wrong. For nearly 50 years, Camp Scott had been a getaway for Girl Scouts of the Oklahoma area, being located only about 40 miles from Tulsa. It had first opened in 1928 and had over 400 wooded acres for the girls to enjoy, accommodating around 140 campers and 30 staff members. The scouts could hike, craft, swim, and sing around campfires. 
On the opening day of June 12th, campers were told to pick their tent buddies. New friends 8-year-old Lori Lee Farmer, 9-year-old Michelle Guse, and 10-year-old Doris Denise Miller came together and headed down the Cookie Trail towards their tent in the Kiawa unit, the most remote unit located furthest from the camp counselors. And even with the only lights coming from their flashlights and the kerosene lanterns hanging at the latrines, there was no reason for the girls to suspect anything wrong. Unfortunately, the counselors didn't know any better, but they probably should have. Leading up to the slayings, there were more than a few warning signs. Earlier in April, during a training session, a counselor's tent was ransacked and a handwritten note was left behind in a donut box, stating that three campers would soon be murdered. Thinking the note was nothing but a prank, it was thrown away and forgotten about. A week before the camp opened, a nearby rancher reported that his house had been broken into. Later, it was known that some of the stolen items were used in the murders. The night before, two of the camp's counselors had been frightened by two strange men found lurking around the camp. But thinking the men were only lost in the woods, they were forgotten too. Some campers said they even saw a man in army boots behind a tent, and another man was seen by a latrine the night of the murders. But with chalking all these things up simply to coincidence, the girls' fates were sealed. As a storm rolled over the area, the campers were sent off into their tents and the camp counselors turned in for the night. Lori, Michelle, and Doris tucked their belongings into the unused fourth bunk and went to sleep in the Kiawa tent. It was after one in the morning on June 13, 1977, that camp counselor Carla Wilhite was awakened by those unknown noises. The counselor recalled it sounded like a cross between a frog and a bullhorn, low and guttural. Carla woke a second counselor to ask if she had heard the noise as well, to no avail. Carla went outside and surveyed the dark woods with her flashlight. Each time her light flashed, the sound stopped. Too tired to keep investigating, she eventually went back to bed. At 2 a.m., one of the Girl Scouts in Tent 7 saw someone pull the tent flap back and shine a light inside. The camper was only able to see the silhouette of what she thought was a large man. The flap closed, and just as quickly as he had appeared, he was gone. An incident at 3 a.m. had one girl wake up to a scream coming from the Kiawa tent. Another scout heard a voice cry out, Mama, Mama. She thought she recognized the voice as Lori Lee Farmer. The two had attended camp together before, and knowing Lori sometimes had nightmares, she ignored the cry and went back to sleep. It wasn't until 6 a.m. the next day when Carla found the girls' sleeping bags that anyone knew that something was terribly, terribly wrong. After Carla had alerted camp director Barbara Day of her discovery, Day and her husband, Richard, ran to the site. After confirming Doris was dead, they lifted the other sleeping bags and realized two more crumpled bodies were in them. The police were called immediately. The investigation showed that Michelle and Lori had been struck in the tent, dying of blunt force trauma to the head. Michelle's head wounds led investigators to believe that she was either lying down or standing with her back to the assailant. There was also evidence that she had been sexually assaulted both vaginally and anally. Doris had met a similar fate. She had been taken into the woods and then strangled after also suffering a massive blow to the head. There were indications that she too had been sexually assaulted. Unlike the other two, all swabs taken from Lori were negative for any seminal fluid. 
The blood on the wooden tent floor was wiped by the attacker or attackers with mattress covers and towels in an unsuccessful attempt to rid the floor of it. The bloody materials were then stuffed in the sleeping bags. Military boot footprints were found at the scene as well as a large roll of black duct tape, a red and white 9-volt flashlight, rope, a gag, and two photos of unknown women. The women in the photos were identified after their images appeared in several newspapers. These photos and other evidence led police to suspect Jean Leroy Hart. Jean Leroy Hart was a Cherokee Native American born and raised in Locust Grove. In 1966, 11 years prior, Hart had confessed to kidnapping, raping, and sodomizing two pregnant women in Tulsa. He was sentenced to 28 months in jail, and in 1970, Hart was convicted of a series of burglaries and sentenced to over 300 years. Three years later, Jean had escaped. He was still at large when the Girl Scout murders occurred. Jean was diligently pursued and was apprehended 10 months later. But there were many that believed that Hart was innocent, using the man's vasectomy as a defense and arguing that sperm evidence could not be connected to him. With a jury of six men and six women, the trial began in March of 1979. Unable to find indisputable evidence against Hart, he was acquitted in April, but returned to prison to finish his previous sentence. Within weeks of his return, Hart was found dead. At 35 years old, his autopsy revealed he had died of a massive heart attack and that the vasectomy surgery had not been successful. With their leading suspect dead, the case went unsolved. In the years since the triple slaying, evidence has been retested on multiple occasions, each time using the latest available technology and each time yielding no new information. It seems the case may never be solved through forensic testing simply because too much time has passed. The murderer of Lori Lee Farmer, Michelle Guse, and Doris Denise Miller may never be known. As for the camp, no Girl Scout has ever taken the cookie trail to Camp Scott. It remains overtaken by weeds and other plant life, leading to the dilapidated lodges that have sat idle and vacant since the horrific deaths of three young girls. Perhaps one of the most devastating murders in all of Hollywood history, Judith Eva Barcy, at only 10 years old, was the victim of a horrific murder perpetrated by a person she should have been able to love and trust entirely. But dreadfully, that was far from the case. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles Bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted.
Judith Barcy was a child actress who contributed to a lot of the childhoods of many children, even still today. But especially those who were kids in the 80s and 90s. Among some movies, television shows, and commercials, Judith lent her voice for characters in popular movies like Ducky in The Land Before Time and Anne-Marie in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Her father, Joseph Barsi, had fled from communist Hungary to New York in 1964 before he eventually went to California. It was here that he met Maria Viravax, who was also a Hungarian immigrant who had fled for similar reasons because of the Soviet occupation of their country. On June 6, 1978, Judith was born in Los Angeles, the perfect place for her to embark on her childhood career. It was Judith's mother, Maria, who had the most influence on Judith becoming an actress. She actively raised her to take on the industry to find work, and once she reached five years old, she was discovered at a skating rink. And from there, everything was looking up. Judith was making about $100,000 a year by the time she started fourth grade, and because of this, her family was able to afford a three-bedroom home in Los Angeles. But while Judith's family should have been appreciative of her success, Joseph was a dangerous alcoholic and would often verbally abuse Judith and Maria, becoming worse and worse as Judith's career grew stronger. He would openly drive drunk and had been arrested a number of times for it. Joseph would often threaten to kill himself, Maria, and Judith, and at one point the threats became so frightening that Maria contacted police due to Joseph displaying acts of physical violence against her. But because police didn't see any physical signs of abuse, Maria's mind suddenly changed and she decided not to press charges, something she very well should have done. But it seemed as though Joseph had snapped out of his drunken addiction. He had stopped drinking. However, his episodes of rage persisted and he continued to threaten to kill his family. He would say a multitude of things to them, saying he'd cut their throats or burn down the house. Yet still, Maria and Judith remained with him. Joseph was staunchly against his family leaving for any reason anyway. He went so far as to hide a message that was sent to Maria concerning a family member of hers that had passed away in Hungary, so she wouldn't attend the funeral and he wouldn't possibly lose her as a result. Things seemed to evolve to more physical levels as time went on, with Judith telling her friends of her father's violent outbursts, where he would hurl objects at her like pots and pans, sometimes even striking her with them and causing injury. This tremendous burden started to psychologically change Judith, and she began to exhibit strange behaviors, like plucking out her eyelashes and even her cat's whiskers. She had also been putting on a notable amount of weight. Eventually, her agent noticed her drastic change during an audition when she broke down crying and she was sent to a child psychologist. The psychologist was able to identify that Judith had been inflicted with severe physical and emotional abuse and she went to Child Protective Services with her findings. Maria, by this time, had rented an apartment in Panorama City and had been using it as a place to go to avoid her husband during the day. She convinced the investigators to drop their case and insisted she would be divorcing Joseph and moving into this apartment. But Maria was afraid, afraid of losing her home and belongings she found precious to her. 
and so she put the material value first. But on the evening of July 25, 1988, this would all accumulate into a devastating and fatal situation. Judith took a bike ride earlier that day, taking advantage of the free time away from her terrible life at home. And it was home where she never should have returned. Her father was about to make good on all of the promises he had made to harm his family. While Judith slept that night, Joseph grabbed his gun, went into her bedroom, and shot her in the head. He then found Maria and gunned her down as well. All of Maria's hope for freedom and Judith's brilliant future were shattered in that home. The home that Joseph continued to live in for the two days that followed, surely contemplating the decision he had made. He spoke with Judith's agent after he killed her and told him that he was going to be moving out of the home and he just needed to say goodbye to his little girl first. He then proceeded to pour gasoline on Judith and Maria's bodies and set them on fire. With the bodies incinerated, he wandered into the garage, put his 32 caliber pistol to his head, and pulled the trigger. Judith was always remembered as a brilliantly bright young girl. She was made to be a star and was able to understand even the most sophisticated of instructions when playing the many parts she played in her short time on Earth. And she will always be remembered for the light she brought to the childhoods of many, despite the darkness that overwhelmed her own. If you or someone you know is involved in domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. I have also linked some resources in the description below. It was a case that shook the heart of a Canadian city, bringing a community together while simultaneously inciting fear into its residents. The death of a young girl at the hands of a heinous monster, the grief of a family spread to the public, and citizens left wondering just how safe their children truly are. All this and more as we explore the anatomy of murder. May 12, 2003, 10-year-old Holly Jones volunteered to walk her friend Claudia home after an after-school play date. Holly, normally a shy girl, was growing an independence in her approaching adolescence and was eager to show her maturity. Claudia only lived a short distance from Holly, so they walked along Sterling Street, the same route Holly walked to school. Upon seeing Claudia off, Holly walked back towards her house down Perth Avenue. When Holly left home at 6 p.m., it was still daylight, but as the darkness grew, her parents, Maria Jones and George Stonehouse, began to worry. They promptly reported her missing, and an Amber Alert was issued the following morning, in addition to a plea from Holly's parents for information about their daughter's whereabouts and for her safe return. However, it was too late. A man walking his dog on Ward's Island stumbled across two bags on the shoreline, each containing body parts. Police identified the remains as Holly Jones. Holly Maria Jones was born on September 14, 1992, into a loving home. 
The youngest of four siblings, her older siblings, Shauna, Natasha, and James, doted on her. Holly was a vivacious, gentle, and energetic little girl with a big imagination and even bigger dreams. With a love of music, she longed to become a famous singer one day. Holly thrived at school. She was well-liked, a good student, and an athlete, playing basketball and running cross-country. But above all, she had a special relationship with her mother. Police searched the waterfront where the remains were found for evidence, asking the public if anyone knew anything about Holly's disappearance and murder. A tip line was flooded with thousands of possible leads with little success. Police appealed for help in identifying two men seen aboard the Toronto Island Ferry around the time Holly's remains were found. One of the men came forward and was cleared as a suspect. The other, not identified. On May 20th, Holly is laid to rest at St. Vincent de Paul Roman Catholic Church with hundreds of mourners, with even police and politicians coming out to support the Jones family. Holly's neighborhood was on high alert after her death, with more reports of attempted abductions. People lived in fear for their children's lives and schools enforced stronger security measures. Law enforcement continued to search for evidence going through the city's garbage and beginning a controversial program for voluntary DNA collection from men within the area. Only a few men refused to take part in the program. One was a 35-year-old software developer named Michael Briere. Michael had no criminal record, and authorities obtained his DNA after he discarded a soda can in a public trash bin. His DNA matched blood found under Holly's fingernails, prompting police to arrest him. While under interrogation, Michael confessed in full to the murder of Holly Jones. After viewing child pornography, he happened to walk outside just as Holly passed in front of his home, and he made a split-second decision that ultimately ended her life. He sexually abused and strangled her within an hour of taking her hostage, then hid her body in his refrigerator and dismembered her. Over the course of three days, he disposed of her body by dumping the bags in the harbor, then disposing of the rest on garbage day. Michael Briere was charged with first-degree murder and was held without bail in protective custody. Holly's family, while devastated, were relieved that her killer had been caught. In the ensuing months, Michael waived his rights to a preliminary hearing. He chose to plead guilty on June 17, 2014, to spare the Jones family from a painful trial. He was sentenced to life in prison and will not be eligible for parole until 2028. Michael attributed his actions to child pornography and stated that had Holly not been in the wrong place at the wrong time, she would still be alive today. Since the trial, two memorials have been created in Holly's honor at two parks in the neighborhood where she lived. Holly's mother has maintained her own garden in Holly's memory at her home. Nothing will ever bring back her youngest daughter, but she and her husband strive for change by proposing Holly's Law. The proposal seeks to provide education and tools to children that help them identify and deal with sexual abuse in hopes of ending it once and for all.
Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.